So I am going to be going uh, through with you guys the discipleship mission. The discipleship mission. And I'm going to be teaching you guys biblically what this means, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to disciple. Um, we're going to, first of all, we're going to start with why we disciple. Then we're going to go into what is discipleship. And then after that, we are going to go into like, well, how do I do it? right? And so we, we have this order. I'm, I'm not going to tell you what discipleship is. I'm going to tell you why we disciple, because the way God operates in his word is that he tells you, he tells you to do something, right? He tells you to do something, and then he tells you like the what and the how after, right? He tells you the what and the how after. So he says, hey, I want you to do this. And we say, why? How? What's up? Right? And he's like, I just told you to do it, Right? Go and do it, and I will supply everything you need afterwards, right? That is the way God operates, right? Go and obey me, and I will supply all of your needs, right? Um, so first of all, we're going to go into the why we disciple, right? The why we disciple. So number one, guys, there's three main reasons why we disciple. Not, now, these aren't the only reasons, right? Um, I could literally, guys, I, I can spend months and months and months teaching you this, right? It, it is the passion of my life. Um, I, I, I really do feel like my call is not to teach. That, that is a gift that I have. Um, it is something I like doing. I like preaching. I like teaching. That is not my main uh, desire in life. That is not what makes, gets me up in the morning. What gets me up in the morning is discipling. It's something I, I love so dearly is discipleship. And so the first reason why I believe we disciple is it is the final call to a follower of Jesus. It is the final call to any follower of Jesus to make disciples. He says this in Matthew chapter 28. So the last thing Jesus tells us, the absolute last thing that Jesus says before he leaves, what the last thing he gives to his disciples is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is the absolute last thing that Jesus tells us to do before he leaves, and he gives the disciples this charge. Now, now, for those of you that have had um, the tragedy of maybe losing a loved one that you love very dearly, maybe a father, maybe a mother, grandparent, um, whatever it may be, their last words are very important, are they not? You really hold their last words in a, in a very high esteem, right? The last thing that somebody tells you, if Pastor Rob were to have, God forbid, have his last sermon here before he goes into parts somewhere else, don't you think that that last thing that he says, the last thing he charges you with, wouldn't you say that's the most important thing to him, right? The last thing he wants to leave you, right? And so if this is the last thing Jesus gives us, don't you think it's pretty important? He doesn't say, all right, now go to the churches and sit and listen to preaching of, in all nations, right? He doesn't say that, right? That isn't his final charge to us. It is not, now go and read your Bible in different places in all nations, right? He doesn't say this. He does, he, his last charge to the believer is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's, that's the first reason why I believe why we ought to disciple. It's Jesus' last charge to us before he leaves and before he comes back again. Secondly, it was Christ's primary ministry here on earth. It was not healing. It was not casting out demons. And it was not arguing. It was discipling. It says in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. He, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and they might send him out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, right? And so his first and foremost goal, guys, as we see in all throughout the gospels, was not preaching to crowds. It was actually spending quality time with 12 men. That was Jesus's primary function while he was here on earth. It was his primary mode of ministry. It was his main goal was to pour as much as he possibly could into 12 specific men. Not preach to the masses, not build a mega church. I would argue that his church was really only about 70 people. And only 12 were like in it and made a difference. Right? Jesus' entire life was poured into these 12 men. It was poured into them. 
So that's the second reason. It was Jesus' primary ministry. Now, he had many other ministries, all right? I'm not, I'm not discounting the healing. I'm not discounting the preaching. I'm not discounting any of this stuff. But what I am saying is that all, most of his time, the majority of his time, and many times, what he would do after he would heal a bunch of people or after he, re- he would preach, he would take his disciples and he said, let's get out of here. So he would heal all these people that needed him. They were very needy. People would glom onto him and they would want to heal him and the disciples would work. And at the end of all of it, do you know what Jesus really wanted at the end of the day? And it says this in every single gospel several times. It says, then he took his disciples to another place. He took them on a boat. He took them on a hill. He took them into a house. He just wanted to spend personal time alone with his disciples. That's all he wanted usually. Now, ministry would come, and he would train them accordingly, but his main mission was these um, disciples. Thirdly, it is the church's primary mode of multiplication. It is the church's primary mode of multiplication. Discipleship is the church's way of multiplication. Um, We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. If you want to turn there, you can. I would suggest, I mean, if you haven't already caught on already, notes are a good thing, right? Notes are going to be a really good thing for you. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You notice that the numbers were being added day by day through them meeting in the temple together, but then breaking bread in each other's houses. Them spending time ministering to the needs of individuals and small households. This was the way the early church multiplied into what we have now here at Godspeed Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks. We would not be here if it weren't for 12 men, each discipling 12 men. And those 12 men, each discipling 12 women, men, all of that. We are here because one man discipled 12 men, and those 12 men discipled a bunch of other people. It is the church's primary mode of discipleship. Uh, the Barna Institute, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. They are a Christian statistics organization. Uh, they do a lot of studies. They do a lot of um, very non-biased studies. It's very clean data, right? Um, and they do a lot of polls and they do a lot of studies. And they have actually found that more people come to Christ through friend or family interactions than altar calls or evangelistic events. In fact, only one in 10 of every Christian actually come to Christ through a church service or an evangelistic event. Nine out of 10 come to Christ through personal, individual interaction with a friend or a family member. Isn't that interesting? They said this, the weekend church service is no longer the primary mechanism for salvation decisions. Only one out of every 10 believers who make a decision to follow Christ do so in a church setting or service. On the other hand, personal relationships have become even more important in evangelism with a majority of salvation decisions coming in direct response to an invitation given by a family member or friend. What they're essentially saying is that Jesus was right. Jesus knew how to do it. Jesus spent all of his time pouring into 12 people, and he made sure that those 12 people were cared for and discipled. Made sure that they were cared for and discipled, right? And so that's why we disciple, guys. That, that, that is the why. So I'm going I'm to go into the, like, what does that even mean, right? What does that even mean to disciple? How do I even begin to do that? I, I'm, I'm praying, as Pastor John prayed a few weeks ago, that you'd be challenged by this. Because if this is the way the church multiplies, then every, every person that we know intimately that we are not seeking to disciple, that's, almost, that's, that's a lost opportunity, right? And since you know that only one in ten Christians come, like, come to the Lord through church, 
that means that the responsibility isn't primarily on me and the other pastors here at this church. It's primarily on you. 90% of the people that are going to come to the Lord in Thousand Oaks are going to be through you guys. Only 10% is going to be through us pastors at the church. 90% are going to be through you. So, like, pressure's off me. On you, right? But I exist, and Pastor Rob exists, Pastor John exists, Tony, Brett, all of us pastors exist to equip you to go do that, right? And we're gladly here to help you and equip you, right? That is, that is, that is the cry of our lives, right? So what is discipleship? First, discipleship is missional, right? Discipleship is missional. And I I read that in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Discipleship is missional. It is a command given by Jesus's disciples. And the idea, guys, the idea is to multiply using the same methods as Jesus. This is the main mission, right? This is the way the church is missional. It's not through church in the park. It's not through uh, whatever outreach we do. It's not through worship nights. It's not through those things, though those are good things to bring new believers to or unbelievers to, but they serve their main purpose, guys, is to get them in fellowship with you, the people, right? Get them in fellowship with you. Jesus's main ministry on earth was preaching to his disciples and not the crowd, as I said before. The Sermon on the Mount, actually, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, the most famous sermon that was given by Jesus, the, you know, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, or um, before you, you know, take the plank out of someone else's eye, take the speck out of your own eye, right? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever lusts in his heart has committed adultery. Are you following with me? All of those sayings, that, those famous sayings by Jesus, did you know that though a crowd was trying to listen in, that Jesus actually only preached it to his 12 apostles? That he was only giving it to a small amount of disciples that were around him, right? We see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. He brought his disciples to his side. The Sermon on the Mount was not for the masses. It was for his disciples, The point is to build strong disciples who build strong disciples. That's the mission, right? It is a better mode of evangelism than preaching to one person every day. And I have a picture here, if it comes up. There we go. So, one year, if you were to bring one person to the Lord each day, 365 days, right? If you were to bring one person to the Lord, you would have 365 people. If you only led one person to the Lord, that's now two believers, right? So year one, right, 365 verse two, right? Doesn't seem like a lot. It seems like it would be much better to just lead one person to the Lord each day, though that'd be pretty stressful, huh? Can we all agree that it's much easier to just lead one person to the Lord and make just double the believers like that, right? But as you can see, as 16 years pass through multiplication of Two people lead two people to the Lord, that's four. Four people lead one person each to the Lord, that's eight. And then there's gospel multiplication here. And here we have 65,536 disciples versus 5,840 disciples. So you lead one person a day for 16 years, you get 5,840. If you only led two people to the Lord, only two, that's it. You only needed to lead two. And those people all led to, or one even, look at that. You guys see that impact? You guys see how much more powerful it is to pour all of your life into just one person rather than scattering it one person a day? Does that make sense? So instead of randomly preaching to someone every single day and kind of giving, you know, just a brief encounter of Jesus, why don't you just pick one coworker? Just one. That's your coworker. He's your friend. She is your friend. You talk to her every day. You invite her out to coffee. Don't tell her about Jesus first. Just get to know who she is. And you ask about her kids. You ask about her life. You ask about his kids. You ask about his hobbies. Oh, he likes fishing. Why don't you go fishing with him one weekend that you're both free? When you gain a relationship and then you talk to him about Jesus, he says no at first. But you're like, all right, whatever. And then you keep going. And then eventually he wants to go to church with you because his life is kind of not where he wants it to be. After a year of hanging out with him, he finally gives his life to the Lord. You equip him 
to give uh, to to do what you did to somebody else and look 60 65,536 people could possibly come out of that you guys understand the power of Christ in that do you guys see the holy spirit working in that discipleship is missional and as i alluded before here's all this paul did this right he had timothy he had titus and he had epaphras those are his three main dudes that he poured into. And he charged them in First and Second Timothy to do what he did to three other faithful men. And do you see how that works? Do you see how gospel multiplication happens? Right? I know I'm beating a dead horse. I know you guys think I'm being really repetitive right now, but I hope you remember it. All right? So, discipleship is missional. Discipleship is also relational. As I said before, in John chapter 13, verse 34, it says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guys, we will be known as the disciples of Jesus by the way that we love each other. By the way that we love people. We won't be known as disciples of Jesus, depending on what type of Facebook posts we give, right? We will not be known as disciples of Jesus based on how many YouTube videos we can quote. We will not be known as disciples of Jesus based on how many end times theories we have. We will not be known as disciples of Jesus depending on whether we don't do this or we don't drink or we don't approve of homosexuality or we don't approve of this person cussing in the workplace. We will not be known as disciples this way. We will be known as, our, as disciples by our love for one another. It's very important to understand. Therefore, our love for one another must be marked with self-sacrificially serving the entire community as Jesus did. So discipleship is relational in the sense that since Jesus gave up his time and his resources and his convenience, since he gave up all of these things for us and for his 12 disciples, we ought to also give up of our time, sometimes our emotional stability at times, pastors give an amen, Wisdom. We give of what has been given to us as Jesus gave of what had been given to him. And by building a relationship with someone, whether it's in your workplace or whether it's your... It's, guys, it could also be a family member, right? And I know that's really hard. I, that's probably harder than, you know, some, for some of you, a family member is like way harder, right, than, than, a, than a fellow worker or something like that. I know that's, that is for me in some cases. Um, but for some of you also, you parents, it's your kids. Um, I had a, th- there was a father um, in one of our youth groups. He was very rude to me all the time, right? He doesn't go to this church anymore. <laughs> um, but, so I could say this, I'm not going to say his name, but he was very rude to me all the time. Um, and I remember he, he gave this backhanded comment one time um, where he's like, well, pff, I mean, where's youth pastor in the Bible, right? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> And, and, and do you know what? Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't normally have these moments. I'm just saying I'm not witty, right? So um, I, I, I just like, I pause for a moment. He's like, there's no youth pastor in the Bible. He's basically saying I have no authority to speak into his kid's life, right? Even though he dropped his kid off to me every week, hoping that I would parent him for him. And, and I, I just remember looking at him like, you're right. I mean, there actually is, there is a youth pastor in the Bible. They're called fathers. And now he was like, you know, like, he got all flustered and, you know, I mean, I rarely see him ever now. But that's, that, that was like the, you know, this Holy Spirit moment in me. I'm like, you're right. There's no youth pastor in the Bible. It's actually dads who are supposed to be doing what I do. And so, and so you fathers who have sons and daughters, that's, that's your charge. Your charge is to disciple your kids as Jesus discipled his apostles, right? Mothers, your, your charge is to disciple as Jesus discipled, right? Uh, these, are, these are kids. If you have a younger sibling in here, and I, I, I told my wife this the other day, I, I said, because she's like, you're the, you, you give all this time to your siblings and stuff. I said, well, if I'm a, 
if I'm a good youth pastor, but a bad big brother, then it means nothing. It means nothing to me. If I don't have a good relationship with my younger siblings, then what does it mean to be a pastor, right? That doesn't make sense, right? For some of you, it's your younger siblings that are in your lives, right? And so by building that relationship with someone that needs mentoring, you share burdens and you rejoice in victories. You do all of these things. You build this relationship. So discipleship is relational. Discipleship is also biblical, Right? The entirety of the Gospels, Acts, and all of the epistles, the, the main function is to provide for people the Gospel of Jesus Christ and to grow them in it. Right, So we have the Gospels that lays out the groundwork of what Christ did on the cross to get people to come to him. You have Acts, which is the apostles, Christ's disciples, spreading that. And then you have the epistles, which is the apostles giving wisdom and discipleship to the people they disciple. So the entirety of the New Testament, at least, at the very least, is one big discipleship model. And churches are so divided over ecclesiology and end time, like all, all of these crazy things that divide a church and all these different church structures. And, and that's why I get frustrated sometimes, don't you? Don't you get frustrated how divided the church is sometimes? Right? And I look at this, I'm like, it's so clear. Jesus just said, love people and make disciples, right? When however you make that happen, do it, right? Make disciples, right? So discipleship is biblical. And discipleship is fruitful. It's fruitful. Here's what I mean by that. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, I hope I'm not going too fast for you. I'll slow down a little bit. But it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works. So the author of Hebrews, he essentially gives this charge to us believers, and he said, let's like start thinking about how we could stir one another up, right? Let's start thinking about how we can like pump up the people next to us. And in, in Ephesians and in Colossians, that's a big function of worship as described to us. It's, it's, a, it's a stirring each other up. It's just getting each other pumped up, right? It's like it, it's stirring each other up for love and good works. That's what discipleship is. It is me causing the brother next to me or the sister next to me to be more fruitful with me next to them than they would be without me, Right? And I think that's a really simple charge for us, guys. I think that's a really simple charge for us at the end of our lives. If, if we have one goal, right, it's obviously to seek Jesus. But a very practical goal is to be like, are the people around me better off because I'm around? Right? I think that's a very simple yet very profound way to think of our lives is, okay, is my are, are the people around me, are they better off because I'm here? Are their lives, like, are they doing more good works because of me, right? Are they loving people deeper because I'm around, right? Is my presence affecting them at all, right? If my presence is not affecting my coworkers or my presence isn't affecting my classmates or my family, if, if me being present does not somehow make people stirred up to maybe love Christ more, then I need to reevaluate, right? I need to reevaluate. Discipleship uh, provides, guys, this accountability in ministry. It's fruitful. It's how the church grows. We need brothers and sisters in our lives to stir us up, guys. I want you guys to think of Christianity as the church as a machine. And it's con the gears are constantly rotating on top of one another. They're being pressured by one another. They're functioning because of one another. That every gear is set in place to stir up another one. Does that make sense? Discipleship is meant to be a catalyst for someone else to be fruitful in their life. Right? You meeting with someone. 
you discipling someone, you pouring into someone, you pouring in your life to somebody else is meant to push them forward so that their lives can thrive deeper, better. Right? Not because you're awesome, but because you guys are both stirring each other up to pursue Christ together. Does that make sense? It's not like you're, you're Midas, right? Like everything you touch turns to gold, right? But it is as you point each other to Christ, you become more fruitful in your endeavors. Fifth one, lastly, with what is discipleship? Discipleship is practical. Discipleship is very practical. Um, you go to other countries and um, you notice something that you don't really get in the United States. The United States is a very individualistic culture, right? Um, we really believe in, I, I need to do everything on my own, right? I need to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I need to forge my own path. I, I need to be successful just because I made it on my own, right? That's, that is a very Western way of thinking. Um, you go to other countries, and uh, for them, it's the more the merrier, Right for them, they have more family members. The, the it's just uh, they increase in number, right? Because with number comes strength, comes support, right? Comes all of these things. You go to a lot of um, African nations and South American nations. This is very prevalent, right? The more the merrier, right? And and that is the way the kingdom of God operates as well. It's the more the merrier. It is a practical way for the church to usher in the kingdom of God. We see that in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says this right here. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, right, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, right? So uh, to give you guys a little backdrop of what's happening, right? A lot of people are coming to Christ, Jews and Gentiles, right? Um, and there was the Hellenists. They were Greek Jews, right? Um, and, and, and they felt as though their widows were being neglected, right? That their people were being neglected. And I don't think it was necessarily a malicious thing on the disciples' part. I think that they were just, they were called to minister to a certain people group. And as everything started multiplying, they had their hands were full. You know what I mean? They couldn't minister to everyone. So listen to their solution. Here's the apostle's solution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So guys, discipleship, discipleship meets the needs of the body of Christ. So, so listen, I'll, I'll give you guys just a really good example right? Um, I have been gone um, from church pretty much the past like three, almost four weeks, right? I, I've been in and out, but I have been unable to engage in uh, the several ministries um, that I am put in charge of, right? I, I've been busy with wedding planning, and then I got married, then I went on my honeymoon, and I, it was just crazy, and it was relaxing, and it was awesome, um, but I was unable, as the disciples were, to perform certain things that I believe they need to get done, right? Now, I was obviously called elsewhere, right? I, I needed to be a part of the wedding process, right? And I needed to be at my honeymoon, right? Uh, that's something you want to show up to. And, 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 and so I needed to be in all of these places. And what was interesting, guys, is that youth group ran smoothly without me. Junior high, high school, the Sunday night ministry, all of my discipleship appointments, everything was totally covered because I've spent the majority of my ministry here in the seven years I've been working here pouring into faithful men who could take my place. I had no needs. There was not a, nothing was left. I was not needed at all. In fact, I was replaced by like 15 guys that did the work that I should have done. And guys, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying guys like my age. I'm saying like 16 and 17 year olds. And they did it flawlessly. And because I had poured into these men, because I spent time with them, I could remove myself from the situation and everything could be done with relative ease. Right? And so some of you are saying, yeah, well, I don't work at a church. Right? 
I can't do that. Well, listen. If we are a community of believers and you spend the entirety of your life pouring into somebody, every week you're pouring into someone, and the second you need a need, you have a need and you can't be somewhere, you need someone fixed or you need some connections, you will have people that you've poured your life into that can help you in a time of crisis, that can help you when you're stripped for time, that can help you in some of the things that you have devoted yourself to, Right? That's what discipleship is all about. It is extending your reach for the kingdom and the glory of God. That's discipleship. Discipleship meets the needs of the body. We raise up well-rounded believers, right? And all those men, those young men that I've poured my life into, they are now in the process of pouring their life into some other men, young men. So there's, there's a few high schoolers that I've been pouring six years into, right? And they are now leaders in our junior high group pouring their lives into the junior hires. And those junior hires, anytime there's a shortage in the kids' ministry, Carissa can tell you, anytime there's a shortage in the kids' ministry, those junior hires who are discipled by those high schoolers, who are discipled by those college students, are in the kids' ministry teaching your kids. That's discipleship. Meeting the needs of the body. Are you getting it? So, who do I disciple? Yeah, sounds like the Marine Corps, huh? It's the army of God, right? It's the army of God. That's, that's the way he has made it. Now, it's easy for me because I work here and people come to me to be discipled, right? So that's easy for me. So, so for you who may not work in a church, I understand that what I might be saying is like... You're not, I'm not registering, right? And I, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like I just wish Pastor Rob was here, right? So I, I know that's what some of you think, right? So, so listen, I'm going to try to make it practical for you here. Now that we know what discipleship is, now we know why we disciple, there's a motivation behind it, there's a reason behind it. Who do I disciple? How do I disciple? How does this whole thing work? And this is what I like to call the Mark chapter 3 mission, right? Mark chapter 3 says this. I have it up here. And he went up on a mountain, and he called to him those he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Everyone say, be with him. Be with him. him. There you go. And that he might send them out to preach, and and they would have authority to cast out demons. So when Jesus called his disciples... This is it. This, this is, the, they, they were in charge of three, like they had three calls, right? Three calls from Jesus. It was to be with him, right? It was to preach and it was to cast out demons. That was what Jesus trained the disciples to do. That was it. That was the first function, guys. Now, one thing I want to mention before I go into the three functions, right? The three ways we disciple people is that this group of people, guys, um, it says right here that uh, they have James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas Iscariot, right? These were all very diverse men, right? You know, very diverse people from tons of different backgrounds. This group was incredibly diverse. And so I, 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 want, I want to mention this to you. When, when you're thinking of like, well, who do I disciple, right? I would say to start out, go with someone who's in proximity to you, right? Go with someone who is near to you. Go to someone who is in your context. Don't go hunting for a disciple, right? Don't be creepy at church, right? And just kind of like that person looks like they're lonely, right? And then just go for it, right? I, I, I would suggest proximity. But however, I would like to tell you that Jesus didn't just pick people that were like him, right? He, he, it was a very diverse group. Now, I, I, I have a group of guys that are very much like me that I disciple because I can relate to them. But I also have to make sure that I don't only disciple people that are exactly like me because that's just like a weird form of narcissism, isn't it? Right? This is me surrounding people with me, right? And the last thing this world needs is more Zach, right? Last thing. And so, and so make sure that you understand that just because they're different from you doesn't mean you guys can't have a thriving discipleship relationship, okay? I want you to understand that. So, 
and, and, and so another thing, um, how do I get people to do discipleship with me? That's, that's like a lot of the time, that's the question that I get. Um, just so you guys know, like what I'm telling you guys here is usually the discussion I have with every single leader I put under me in the youth ministry and the college ministry and whatever. They, they get this conversation from me of the, everything you're learning tonight, right? And um, the most frequently question I is like, how do I get people that like, how do I ask them? <laughs> do you just go up to people and say like, do you want to be my disciple? Right? Like, <laughs> isn't that creepy? And doesn't that make you feel weird? You know, <laughs> like, I don't know, like Chuck, you work at Trader Joe's, right? You know, it's just someone at Trader. Do you want to be my disciple? Right? Like that's, that's, that's weird. That's awkward. Right? I don't even do that. I'm going to pastor, right? Like that's, that's just, that's weird. That's really awkward. So do, I, I really suggest don't go up to someone and just say, be my disciple. Right? Right? So, so that's, that's a really bad way to start, right? That's a good way to get kicked out of the church, right? If enough people complain, right? Listen, when Jesus chose Matthew, the tax collector, he just went up to him and he just said, follow me. And he left, right? Like, and then he just walked away. And so Matthew was at this point where he's like, yeah, right? And he, he said that to the fishermen too. He's like, drop your nets, follow me. And the fishermen had this like, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure, right? And, and and so there was this level of awkwardness in follow me, right? There, there There is a level of awkwardness there. But what I would say for us, people who aren't the son of God, right? Um, I, I, I would say the best way I have found to start a discipleship relationship is sitting, like, you know, just meeting them at church, right? Or meeting them at your job, right? I disciple people that I meet at school too, right? So, I don't want you guys to think that, oh, it's easy pickings. I have to be awkward out at school. Like, you know, I, I have to be awkward out there, right? I have to, like, go and ask people, like, do you want to you wanna hang out, right? Like, and, and they're always taken back because, like, we're just acquaintances at this point, right? And so I, I do a good job of spending a couple weeks just having small talk with them, right? I know it sounds fake and it sounds surface level, but make sure that you're not creepy, right? Make sure that they feel relatively comfortable around you. And once you've, you know, laid the groundwork of kind of like, they know your name, they know your face, they know relative general information about you, they can decipher that you're not a serial killer, right? They, they, can, they can kind of like gauge this for themselves. That's when you kind of ask like, hey, like, when are you free in the next couple of weeks? Like, I, I just, like, do you want to get coffee? Like, not in a date like way, just like, I just want to get to know you and who you are, right? And, and you know what? A lot of people will say no. Guys, more people say no to me than say yes to me. I'll tell you that. Way more people say no to me. And do you know what? I'll, even more people say yes to me, and then we have coffee once, and they never want to have coffee again, right? That happens. That's, the, that's, 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 that's what, I mean, come on. Like, we have an awkward religion, okay? We worship a God who died on a cross. We, every Sunday, we, we take blood and the body of Christ. That's weird. That's, don't tell me that's not weird, right? Don't sit here and tell me somebody living in a whale for three days isn't weird, okay? You, you don't, don't, don't be hyper-spiritual with me. You know it's weird for people to march around a wall seven times and for it to crumble down, right? Don't, don't act like you don't doubt that at all. We have an awkward religion, okay? We have a very awkward religion, so it's going to be awkward sometimes. But do you know what? Like one out of a hundred people that you ask will say yes. And they, they will think that you were the most genuine person they've ever met. If you just say, I just want to know who you are. Right? I just want to get to know you, man. I just want to be your friend. I just want to be your friend. Right? And, and, and a lot of people think you're weird, but, but that one person will be like, that person's real. That person's not interested in just knowing me on a surface level like everybody else I've ever met. They actually want to know who I am. That's the person you're after. That's the person you're after. And, and no matter what age you are, no matter what context you're in, that, that applies. So if you're 80 years old, find another 80-year-old, right? 
If you're 12 years old, find another 12-year-old. That's, that's, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter what job you have. It's just the way it works. First thing is intimacy. It's the first thing they were called to as disciples. They were called to be with Jesus. Just be intimate with him. They were called to just be in proximity to Jesus. They were called to just do life together. They were called to eat a meal, play basketball, sit and talk about life, stuff like that, right? They were just called to do life together, go fishing, whatever, right? They were just called to do life with Jesus first and foremost. That's it, to just be with him. It says it right there, and he pointed 12 so that they might be with him, period, Right? So, so no ifs, and, or buts. They, they're just called to just be next to Jesus. Now, this is our first call as Christians, right? Our first call as Christians is to be next to Jesus, right? To not go and do things first, but to first and foremost, just sit at the feet of Jesus and just hang out with him, to be with him, to be in his word, to get to know his character. And that is the first, that's the first step of discipleship, guys. The first step of discipleship is to just do life together. Now, for those of you that are married couples in here, it might mean that you grab another married couple and you just take them out to dinner, right? And a good way is to find them at church, right? Or find a coworker that you really get along with, right? And say, hey, like, do you want to have dinner with my wife and I, my, my husband and I? Right? And that's a really good way. I know the minks do that a lot, right? You know, Katie and John, they just take people to their house. Like, do you want to have dinner, right? That's a really good way to start it right? If you're single, right? Just, you know, find, you can find a married couple too, right? Or you can find somebody at your, at your work that you just really enjoy being around. I suggest dudes with dudes and girls with girls just so there's no mixed signals, right? Is that safe to, can I say that? Like, I think that's safe, right? Just practical. Just, just, just like, hey, do you just want to hang out? You want to play basketball? Do you want to go play racquetball? Whatever, right? If you're not active, you want to bake a cake. I don't know. Whatever it means for you, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Whatever your comfort zone is, your comfort zone is. So that was their first call. It's just intimacy, just being together, just doing life together. Jesus ate around a campfire, joked around with his disciples. You better believe it. You better believe Jesus told jokes. Sometimes I wonder if, like, he ever told fart jokes and stuff. It's 12 dudes, right? Like, I, I just wonder that sometimes. I don't think that's sacrilegious for me to say. I just wonder if they're, they're like, all around a campfire, 12 dudes, right? Like, I mean, just making jokes and having fun, all of this stuff, right? So they were just being together. They were just being brothers. You know what I mean? Just being brothers. He ate at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and just were together, Right? laughing, having a good time, eating. Isn't that good? Right? The second thing that the disciples were called to do is preaching and teaching. Right? Preaching and teaching. So once that relationship is established, guys, once that friendship is established, once, once this kind of uh, increasing, like, doing life together increases, you have to insert at one point the word of God. Right? Otherwise, it's just hanging out and being nice to them on their way to like whatever sin they're in. You know what I mean? And, and, and so at one point, you must incorporate talking about Jesus, right? At one point, you got to, so, so it can be really easy as far as you grabbing someone and be like, hey, do you want to join a quad at my church? Right? We have women's quads and we have men's quads where it's devoted to relationship around eating and hanging out and reading the word of God. Right? It could be as simple as that, or it could be as simple as, hey, we're starting a home study, my wife and I. Do you want to come and join us? Right? Or it can be after you've spent two months or so just hanging out, doing whatever you guys have decided to do, you just start to insert godly rhetoric in there. And you start to talk to them about Jesus, and you start to tell them about your life, because you better believe this, guys. If they have been hanging out with you for more than, I would say, two weeks, they better know Jesus, or at least who he is, right? Because if he's an important part of your life, and you're sharing life with somebody else, you better believe they'd be exposed to Christ, right? I have this philosophy that if I'm acquaintances with somebody, right, like, they, they may or may not know that I'm a Christian, Right? 
you know, I'm, I'm with somebody like next to them on a bus or, you know, pass by them in the cafeteria or, you know, whatever it might be, right? At Starbucks, just acquaintances with someone, they may or may not know I'm a Christian depending on how small talk goes. But if someone knows my face, if someone knows my name, if someone like knows who I am, we don't have to be best friends, but if someone knows me and we would consider ourselves relative friends, they know I love Jesus. That's this personal philosophy of mine. They can't know generally who I am and not generally know who Jesus is. I consider that a failure on my part as a Christian. If I know somebody well and they don't know that I love Jesus. Because if he's an important part of my life, they're going to know, right? So Jesus is inserted there, preaching and teaching, right? And then the last one's weird, right? It's creepy, right? You know, that's, that's weird. Once again, we're not going to get hyper-spiritual in here. Like, don't, don't pretend the demons don't weird you out, okay? <laughs> All right? It's weird, right? It's weird casting out demons, right? So, 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 after a few, you know, meetings at Starbucks or if you boycott Starbucks, whatever, coffee bean, I don't know, whatever you guys are doing, right? You guys are having coffee, you guys are over dinner dates with, you know, family, friends, whatever it may be. And you see a demonic presence in them, you lay their hand. No, no, not doing that, all right? weird. How do we do this? Right? So, so this is where I am like looking from a Western point of view, right? Where everything's about medicine and science, right? And there's no demons apparently, right? So it's like, how do we deal with this? Right? How, how do I insert this into my practical discipleship with a coworker, with a family member, with my son or daughter, right? Reading your daughter or your son before bed, just reading the Bible with them and just be like, sweetie, I think you have a demon in you. Right? You can't say that, right? You can't. So, so how do we insert this in here, right? How, how, do we, how do we wrap this into Thousand Oaks, California in 2016, right? How, how, do we, how do we approach this? Part of the apostles' ministry was equipping people with the whole armor of God that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, right? The whole armor of God, Right? The breastplate of righteousness, right? The shoes of faith, right? The belt of truth. Helmet of salvation, right? All, all of these things, right? I mean, the shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the word of God, right? The apostles were all about equipping people with the whole armor of God, not to protect them from ideology, not to protect them from people we disagree with, but to protect them from who? Yeah spiritual powers and principalities. That's what the armor of God is for. And so if we are equipping our brothers and our sisters with the whole armor of God, salvation, truth, faith, right? All of these things. If we, if we are seeking to equip people, what we are doing is equipping them, equipping them to withstand and protect themselves from the attacks of the enemy. That means we're bathing them in prayer, that means we're edifying each other in the word. And that means that you are aware of the issues in their lives. So, so another philosophy that you ought to take on, if you are discipling someone, if you're pouring into somebody, if you consider yourselves good friends with somebody, and you don't know any struggles that they're going through in their lives, that's a failure on my part as a friend, right? Because everyone carries their own demons, Everyone has their baggage. Everyone has their issues. Everyone has struggles that they're going through that the enemy is just pounding them hard, especially if they're growing in the Lord, right? And so it is your job as a disciple of Jesus and as a disciple maker to make sure you are pressing into people's lives, praying over them, asking them about their issues, bathing them in the word of God, right? We're making an effort to do real life because real life is the good stuff and the bad stuff, right? The good stuff and the bad stuff. And so that's, that's, that's what we do. That's how we disciple. Now, now, once again, you may leave tonight and you may think that this was super vague, right? I would, I would encourage you 
to go home and look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Look at the people around you. Just one, just remember, just one person. Guys, if you minister to one person, led them to the Lord, and that was the only person you ever led to the Lord in your entire life, that is a victory. That is an absolute victory victory. So you don't even have to have 12 like Jesus did. But for however many years you have left on this earth, and we have no idea, none of us do, we're going to devote it to just one person, right? Just one person doing life with them, making sure that they feel loved and cared for, making sure that they are given the counsel of the word of God making sure that the baggage that they they deal with, as in Galatians 6, it says to bear one another's burdens, right? It says to bear one another's burdens. That we are going through life and we are making sure we hone in on just one person. For some of you, it's your kids. For some of you, it's your family member. Once again, I can't tell you who that is. But I have a feeling if you give it any, any kind of prayer, like I'm saying you just close your eyes, there's someone that pops into your head probably. At least one person, right, that you think of. That one woman that comes into work, you just know something's wrong, but you don't want to be nosy, you know? So that one guy that's always complaining about his marriage at work, Right? That one person at church that you see in the back over there that never hangs out with anybody and that you've wanted to say hi to, but you never have. Somebody, somebody's in your head right now, right? I'm I'm, I'm gonna pray for you and and we're gonna pray together that we have the bravery and that we have the steadfastness by the power of Jesus to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? That we would endeavor in these people's lives. And if we just led one person to the Lord, and that person just led one person to the Lord, the rest of our nation, like, like this wickedness problem we have in our nation that we complain a lot about, if just like 300 people, or 500, 300 to 500, kind of like the size of this church, if we all just led one person to the Lord and equipped them to lead one person to the Lord, our problem would be solved in the next few generations. That's really tangible, isn't it? So let's be a part of the solution. Amen?